1: Thank you for being with us for another edition. Um, I'm Bill Nygut, and uh, we're very glad to uh, have you here. As we get to almost the end of the eight-week period before— let me say we're ending at the eighth week before the election. We're about to move into just seven weeks uh, before the November 3rd election. And I have to say, if you're getting tired of kind of the slashing, toxic attacks that are flying back and forth among candidates— In this cycle, all I can tell you is there's one group of people who are incredibly happy about it, and that's the TV stations in markets around the country, especially in states that are in play in the presidential race. But here in Georgia, where you've got two important Senate races, where you've got a couple of very competitive congressional races, particularly uh, in uh, the metro uh, suburbs, Uh, and uh, where where you've got just uh, so many races that are highly competitive. The TV stations are going to make a lot of money, and you're going to see ads more and more often as you already are. Uh, And so today we're going to spend part of the show kind of looking at where the uh, big two U.S. Senate races stand in Georgia through the lens of the ads that the candidates themselves are running. And then, of course, a little later in the show, we're going to talk a bit about two blockbuster news stories that uh, will ask our panel about their impact, they think, maybe, on the presidential race here in Georgia. One, of course, uh, the reporting now about Bob Woodward's new book about Donald Trump, in which Trump acknowledges to Woodward that he knew the coronavirus was very serious, very scary early on, but felt that He didn't want to panic the American people and held back from telling them what was really going on. We'll talk about that. And then, of course, in a state like Georgia with a huge military presence, we'll talk about the possible impact that the Atlantic article, uh, which uh, quotes uh, Trump disparaging U.S. military personnel in ways that may have an impact on how people feel about him here in Georgia. So we'll do all that and more on the show today and joining us for the conversation, my partner on Thursdays on the show, Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Kevin, glad to have you with us today.
2: You know, it's really great to be here, Bill. And, uh, you know, if your introduction is any guide, it's great to get up this morning and watch TV with you since we're going to be talking about these TV ads so much.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We will spend some time on that. Um We're also joined today by Eric Tannenblatt. He is a longtime uh, Republican insider here in Georgia, but also on the national political scene. Eric uh, was uh, chief of staff uh, during the first term of Governor Sonny Perdue's tenure as governor of Georgia. He has worked with everybody from uh, Paul Coverdale here in the state, Mitt Romney, uh, George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, Jeb Bush has always had a close relationship with them. And now, uh, Eric, you oversee the global government affairs uh, practice for Denton's, the world's largest law firm. Hi, Eric. Hi. Glad glad to be
3: here. And I, I, you made a comment about all the ads the next seven or eight weeks. I think these ads are going to go until yeah. January, given the Senate race.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we're gonna. That's exactly right, and we'll talk about the fact that, that Senate race number two is probably headed to a uh, runoff down the line. Alan um, Abramowitz, Professor Abramowitz joins us today, political science professor at uh, the at, at Emory University. Um, Alan, uh, we've said on the show before that uh, you're one of those political scientists uh, who people who people look to for modeling of where we're headed in uh, the presidential race, as it draws nearer, we'll look forward to it. You're still in the – you're not on top of that yet, are you? Are you in the middle? Are you crunching numbers? Or do you wait for a while on that? I'm, I'm always crunching numbers. <coughs> I
4: never thought crunching yeah. numbers.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. <quite> <laughs> okay. All right. Um, what, we also should say – go ahead. Do you want to tell us when are we going to start seeing something from you on that?
4: Oh, you've already – I've already put out some things, some, pro, some preliminary forecasts. But I was going to say about the political ads, I don't know which is more disturbing to watch, the political ads or the ads for that eye disease. They're, they're, I, I just cringe. I just cringe when I see either one. You know, I mean, it's just
1: horrifying. All right. Thank you, Alan, for that uh, review of a, a medical commercial. Uh, we've got uh, Dr. Amy Steigerwald with us again today. She, too, is a political science professor. She's at Georgia State University, and uh, we're always glad to have you here, uh, Amy. We should say that your expertise is on the federal courts, uh, but also you've made a real mark on, uh, on, on uh, writing about women in politics. You're, I think you would probably say, and you t- correct me if I'm wrong, that the book, that you published a couple of years back, Gendered Vulnerability, How Women Work Harder to Stay in Office, probably was the book that has had the greatest impact as, as people looked at what your research showed. Is that fair?
0: I would like to think so. Um, I think we were one of the first to really show that there were sort of gender differences in behavior that go past just looking at things like what types of bills are introduced. A lot of people sort of focus on the idea that, for example, women legislators are more likely to introduce bills dealing with things like childcare. And we really wanted to look at it more broadly and found that uh, female legislators are much more likely to engage in activities that reflect their constituents' interests (laughs) and sort of work for constituents than their male colleagues. And it's true across the board. we, are on some level, were really sort of uh, surprised by sort of how how much we saw that and, and where that hit. The other thing is, I'll give a plug, this is the reason to watch mm-hmm. soccer, is that you don't have to see all of the political ads because they don't stop for TV breaks, and it's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> That's right.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. um, let me, uh, uh, Kevin Riley. before we talk about uh, politics today, one quick note. Uh, the, the state, the governor's office, and the Department of Public Health, uh, both put out uh, news releases yesterday. They're very proud of the fact that the numbers of new coronavirus cases have come down substantially. And in fact, they have. Um, but Kevin, we should also point out that at the same time, there's still around 1,800 cases, new cases a day. The University of Georgia just yesterday reported a significant increase in COVID-19 cases. They're up to 1,400. Somebody, If somebody could turn down the alerts on whatever computer they're on, that'd be great. Um, they have like 1,400 new positive cases just in the last week alone, and uh, we don't know how severe those cases are, but uh, Kevin, th- the point being that uh, we are far, far from out of the woods on the coronavirus, even though our numbers seem to be getting better, right?
2: Yeah, I think it's safe to say, Bill, the numbers are getting better, but they're not good. They're just getting better.
1: All right. Well, we're going to keep track of it, and we will continue to uh, bring in our panel of virologists and public health experts over the period of the weeks ahead to uh, help us understand what's happening better. All right. Let's turn to the uh, uh, how the TV spots that are on the air right now are influencing uh, uh our understanding of where the campaigns stand today. And um, we'll play a series of, of spots and ask our panel to weigh in. Uh, so let's start with um, Doug Collins. We're talking Senate race number two. Uh, Collins, of course, uh, entered the race. Uh, hope He had hoped that Brian Kemp was going to appoint him to fill the, uh, ter- the seat of Johnny Isaacson who retired from the Senate at the at the end of last year uh, the governor instead went a different direction. he appointed Kelly Leffler that also contrary to apparently President Trump's wishes that Collins be the person that he appointed and and ever since Collins and Leffler have been in this thing together they've been battling for the hearts and minds of of Trump's supporters and both trying to make claims Kevin that Ryan, Trump uh, has yeah. essentially, endorsed them. So uh, let's listen. Doug Collins has his first ad out. He's now starting to spend money. Loeffler's been spending a lot of money for quite a while now. She's attacked him routinely in her ads, so have PACs supporting her. And here's how Doug Collins, in his first TV ad, responds. Kelly
2: Loeffler spent $30 million on slick ads telling lies. (laughs) Now it's my turn to tell the truth. I'm not a billionaire. I'm a state trooper's kid husband a father an air force chaplain and an iraq war veteran i have always earned an a-plus from the nra and pro-life groups and i'm president trump's top defender against the sham impeachment and yes his preferred pick for the senate i'm doug collins my ads may not
1: be slick but i approved it because it's the truth so i want to give everybody a chance to talk about what they hear here eric you're the republican on the panel today Uh, give us your thoughts as you listen to uh The Collins. By the way, very informal. He's in blue jeans. He's uh, wearing an open collar sports shirt. Uh, He's very much kind of a regular guy uh, in a field somewhere. I think,
3: Eric. Yeah. uh, Look, I think it's a it's a good ad. It's it's uh, positive. Uh, He's trying to appeal. uh, Come across as a, a populist. It talks about his military background. Uh, he takes some liberties when I, I guess you could say, uh, you know, President Trump did talk to Governor Kemp prior to Governor Kemp making his decision about, you know, Doug. But I think the president has, uh, it, it appears, has stayed out of it and has said nice things about both both candidates. But, you know, look, I think that uh, I think the Collins ad, you know, is a is a very positive ad, and, you know, but, you, you know, this the first ad. So. Um, I'm sure that you know you'll continue to see uh, the Leffler uh, campaign uh, pick apart some of the things that are, are in the ad,
1: uh, Alan. But it is a good marker. It does start and tell us something about the dynamic of the uh, fight between Leffler and Collins. Eric mentioned yeah. it already, but Collins saying, "Yes, I am President Trump's preferred choice for yeah. uh, the job," and. I, I'm not sure that's problematic President Trump told uh, Governor you should appoint uh, uh, Collins to that position-hmm
4: well they're, well they're, they're both you know both candidates there are trying to appeal to Trump supporters obviously um, and at this stage you know heading towards this jungle primary they're focusing on Republican voters and they are not concerned yet about a, a general election campaign uh, so there, what we've seen from Kelly Loeffler are a bunch of ads attacking Doug Collins and portraying him as some sort of closet liberal who coddles criminals, basically. Um, and and the, the main thing I would say is just, I mean, Loeffler's just saturated the airwaves with advertising for months. Uh, I mean, she had ads running before the June primary. Uh, so now, finally, I was, Doug Collins is on the air, and I'm wondering whether it's too little too late. Um, that that was, I, I don't know. I haven't seen any polling on that, on that race recently. Um, but I'll be very interested in, in seeing yeah. that, you know, whether Leffler has. Uh, it was initially it looked like Collins uh, uh, had the advantage, but but now after months and months of advertising uh, by Leffler, I suspect that um, she's now the front runner among the you know of, of the two Republicans.
1: Yeah, Amy, we don't have a lot of polling on that race number two, uh, but what polling we do have, and we don't have kind of a pollster essentially of record at this point uh, in the state. Um, you know, Mark Roundtree at Landmark Communications is as close as we often get other than whatever polling the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and WSB-TV do. But um, uh, but what polling we have does show Leffler typically out front uh, a bit in the entire field, not just among the Republicans in that field, but the Democrats as well. Um, but but, I thought another thing about the, that spot is that he was able to position himself not as the rich person in the race and, and in a very kind of mild way to take a shot at uh, Kelly Leffler's wealth and point out, I'm the guy more like all of you out there, Yes.
0: Um, I was struck by a number of things with the ad. Um, number one is there is a lot of sort of prior research that suggests that negative ads can backfire on candidates, right, particularly if they're seen as only being negative and when countered with positive ads. So this was sort of a striking ad because in many ways it was it was wholly positive. It was kind of reminding people of the Collins background, emphasizing a lot of things that um, – might appeal uh, more broadly, not just to the base. So the fact that he served in the military, he was an army chaplain, um, not shying away from the fact that he has, uh, you know, this criminal defense background, and that he sort of got into politics to, you know, work for people and not on another thing. And so, in that sense, I think it was sort of good. It was sort of down home and folksy in a way that. He's really able to do. Um, on the other side, because I'm the dork who had to look up all the polling uh, before we even started, um, alan has got a good point, right? The the sort of early polls have Leffler ahead, somewhere between seven to nine, and then the rest of the field is is kind of split with Warnock and Collins kind of battling it out for second and third. I think some of it is there's a lot of time. They were sort of trying to get through, I think, the primaries for the other races. And so now is the time that we're going to start to see a lot more ads and things coming out. Um, I think where the real issue and what makes this race difficult is that it's this jungle primary. So Leffler and Collins are battling it out. And Leffler is much more explicitly doing this, sort of going after the base. Right. There, there's not kind of that broader appeal. Where I thought Collins' ad was interesting is that, yes, he emphasized sort of his ties to Trump, but he also pitched it as a broader appeal. It wasn't just to the base. It wasn't just to Republican voters. It was here's why I'm a good choice for everyone. And so it's going to be interesting to see, I think, how that turns out as we go on. Well,
2: yeah, I think it's also important to remember, uh, Bill, that that. Uh, You know, Collins is, especially if we're thinking about, you know, they're courting Trump supporters at this point when you get right down to it, um, Collins is extremely well-known. I mean, he was on television virtually every day for a month during the impeachment and its aftermath. So people know who he is. They know his name. And now I think he's trying to remind them or or tell them other things about himself because he knows— that Kelly Loeffler has been in a mad rush to introduce herself to the electorate, and on one hand, you know she saturated the airways. I think Dr. Brownwood points out, rightly, she's also made a lot of news. I mean, some of it maybe not very flattering, but but you can't escape Kelly Loeffler right now. So it's going to be interesting to see if Collins is playing this right. Uh, I I think it is fair to say, however, that the Republicans are dominating the discussion in that in that. Uh, uh, that entire race and you really have to wonder. I know we're going to look at some other ads um, and also Bill. So I don't forget um, you will see some polling from us before too long at the AJC.
1: All right,
3: Eric. Yeah, I just I just want to just add a couple a couple things too. Uh, um, you know, first of all, Kelly Leffler was not well known. So she had to introduce herself to, to Georgians. And as Kevin said, Doug had some notoriety from the work he primarily did outside of his district from the impeachment trial. So Kelly had to go out and introduce herself. I think she's done that uh, very effectively. I think the man on the street vignettes, I think, have been very helpful. She's, uh, she's come across as being a very effective uh, senator in terms of constituent services. Um, but then I also think she's uh, at the same time tried to define Doug. So besides just thinking of Doug as the person who you know, uh, supported the president in the impeachment hearing, she pointed out some other things about him. And what, one thing in particular, I think she's very effectively done is pointed out that he's a career politician. And that is, that's one of the things people I think liked about President Trump when he ran, is he was an outsider. And again, in Georgia, we have a history. Look at David Perdue. David Perdue was an outsider. And Kelly's, you know, portrayed herself effectively, I believe, as an outsider and portrayed Doug as a career politician. Look, this, this jungle general uh, is really the primary for the Republic. There's going to be one Republican that comes out of it. And one Democrat that comes out of it. And so they're fighting for the Republican vote right now.
1: Yeah. All right. Let's do this. Um, a- Alan, I'm going to play a spot, the spot from Leffler in which he had, one of the spots in which he attacks him, uh, Collins, and then uh, ask you to weigh in on the dynamics of all this. So, he, You know, Kevin Riley makes the point, and our panel yesterday did too, voters in Georgia really know Doug Collins. They've known him for quite a while, and uh, they basically seem to like him, Republicans, of course. So as Eric points out, it's up to the Leffler campaign to redefine a guy who Republicans here have liked. And here's one way they've been trying to do it.
0: Before he became a career politician, Doug Collins was a criminal defense lawyer. On his website, Collins advertised directly to sex offenders, drug dealers, even murderers. Collins and his partner helped violent criminals and gang members get out of jail. Some struck again. Doug Collins, he only plays a conservative on TV. The law and order conservative who is fighting the radical left. Kelly Loeffler for Georgia.
1: I always love lines like that, Ellen. He only plays a conservative on TV. Talk right. to us about that approach.
4: Well, clearly, as you were saying, um, she's trying to uh, redefine Doug Collins and trying to undermine the um, the image that he has as a strong conservative, um, and uh, you know this idea of associating him with you know the criminals that she defended as, as as a lawyer. I mean, I don't know how effective that is. But that's that's clearly what what she's trying to do. and you know they're both fighting for the Republican vote. They're fighting to, to make it into the next round, as, as Eric was saying. That's what this is all about right now. Who is going to go up against in all likelihood uh, Raphael Warnock uh, in in the runoff?
1: Yeah, they're, uh, that, the way in which they're positioning Leffler is as she's the law and order conservative. Mm-hmm. Where have we heard that? Who's been talking about law and order before? Oh, President Trump, who's fighting the radical left. I love the uh, Collins response, though. You can always count on consultant Dan McClagan to come back with a, a, uh, a snippish response when his campaign is attacked. Here's what McClagan said about uh, the way that uh, they're taking on uh, Collins as a defender of criminals. McClagan said, quote, poor people in Kelly's world of mansions and private jets do not deserve representation in court. Accusation equals conviction if your bank balance does not have enough zeros in it, Kevin.
2: Yeah, I, uh, I enjoyed when, when I saw that. I, I'm really curious about what the members, of, you, know, the, our, uh, th- you know, the folks on this panel think about this law and order approach. You know, I mean, it harkens all the way back to Richard Nixon in 68 and a lot of references and, and – you know, where that will ultimately go, how appealing it is, what its limitations are. I mean, Eric, I'm sure you've heard that kind of stuff before. And right now, how strong a position? I mean, she has laid claim to it
3: at this point, right? Well, she's laid claim to it. Uh, The president is obviously uh, talking a lot about it. And I think it's a it's a concern when you see the uh, protesting, the rioting that's going on around the, the country. I think people are—there uh, are people that are very concerned about safety, and, and that is resonating with them. It's resonating with the base. I mean, I'm talking to a lot of people in the Republican base, and you know, they are furious with what's going on, with whether it's anarchists, what's going on in Portland— Uh, The fires, the riots. I mean, there's even there's even issues in Atlanta that, you know, not to the extent of the riots that we've seen in Portland or, you know, Kenosha. But, uh, you know, the even the drag racing that's been going on. I mean, I'm talking to people that just think what's going on. There's you know the police aren't doing anything or the police can't get control of things. The city's not enforcing things. This is in the city of Atlanta. And so I do think with some people, law and order is resonating.
1: Um, We acknowledge, however, Amy, that we're still talking about a small minority of people who are contributing to this picture of chaos in uh, cities around the country. Amy?
0: Yes. I mean, I think it is notable that there have been widespread protests across the nation and actually in other countries as well, and a very few number of them. Uh, result in violence or even any kind of arrest or things like that. But I think the other side of it, which is interesting, is that if we sort of, as Kevin was mentioning, that sort of law and order accounting came up as a political tactic first in the 1972 election with Nixon. The big difference, though, which makes it a bit of a harder conversation right now, especially uh, coming from Trump, is that Nixon was not the incumbent, right? He was the challenger. He was the one who was going to come in... And Sorry, in 68, and save us from Mm -hmm. the um, sort of violence that was happening and fix it because those who were in office currently were not doing their job. That's a harder argument to make as the incumbent, right? It's happening under you, so it's a bit more difficult to say that you're going to kind of come in and clean it up when it's happening currently. And so it's going to be interesting, I think, to see how that plays. I think the other issue is that there's been a lot of... um, Interesting sort of survey research coming out about the framing of law and order, which has a very, um, which sort of harkens sort of law enforcement, militarization, sort of very, sort of that, as opposed to public safety. And what is interesting is that public safety generally pulls higher because it's about a broader sense of community safety and not necessarily that people want it to be that they see sort of cops everywhere or things like that. But what they want to know is, like, I can go take my child to the playground and not have to worry about things. It's that sort of broader sense of safety and community and things like that. And that can be a attention, too.
1: Ellen?
4: Well, I think the, the play here is, is to blame Demo- Democratic mayors and governors uh, for, for the violence and unrest, sure. even though so Trump's the president. And uh, from that standpoint, you might say, well, he's, he's responsible for what's happening. But that the, the message here is that it's the De- Democrats who are in charge of these cities and in many cases of these states. Now, so far, it doesn't really seem to be all that effective. Uh, you know, I'm looking at the polling, and even in Wisconsin, where there have been has been considerable uh, unrest. Uh, And there has been violence in in addition to peaceful protests. Um, I haven't seen any evidence of any real shift so far in public opinion. And what the national polling tells us is that actually Biden is preferred on this issue. Uh, Then when when voters are asked, uh, which candidate do you think would do a better job of of keeping people safe, Uh, Biden comes out ahead uh, on that issue uh and and so what we're seeing here i think is an attempt to kind of shift the focus of the campaign away from the pandemic uh and the nearly 200,000 people who who died and that which trump doesn't want to scare people about to crime uh, and disorder which he does want to scare people about um but so so far i mean i'm you know maybe, maybe this will change but but so far it doesn't doesn't seem to be having that much effect
1: I got to get to a break, but Kevin Riley, I think Alan Abramowitz just said something very important, and that seems to me in some ways to be successful. The president, in many ways, has turned the national conversation away from COVID-19 to some extent, and there's more focus on law and order. The Biden campaign nationally is trying to resist falling into that trap, but the reality is it's been fairly successful in stealing some of the energy away from people's concerns about how the president has handled uh, the pandemic.
2: He seemed to be doing just fine with that until he talked about Woodward, Bill.
1: Well, that's right. There's where we're going to see. And we'll talk about that in a little while. Let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. I want to come back. There are Democrats, of course, running in that race number two. And we've also got David Perdue and John Ossoff, Senate candidates, in race number one. We'll talk about that and more after these messages. Professor Amy Steigerwald, Professor Alan Abramowitz, Eric Tannenblatt, and Kevin Riley joined me today. Alan, very, very quickly, you said you've already been doing some uh, modeling of the race. I haven't uh, personally. I I guess I should be aware of it. I'm not. Just give us a quick uh, take on what you're finding as you as you go through this process right now. Alan, have we lost you? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, my my audio went off for a minute. Could you could you, you okay? The question? I, yeah, what I mentioned, what I said was yeah, at the beginning of the show, you said you've already been crunching oh, yeah. data and you've already got some right. results. Just give us a very quick, very quick look at what you what you're finding right now. So,
4: um, a lot of the components of the forecasting model that I use to really, you know, it, what key component is is the economy. Uh, and it's a change in, G- in GDP in the second quarter of the year, which typically is a pretty strong leading indicator of what's going to happen in the election. But I just threw that out for 2020, uh, and, and mainly be- because it's so off the charts um, that if you, if you actually use that number in my, in my uh, model, you end up predicting that Donald Trump will lose the popular vote nationally by 35 points. That, that's how bad that, mm-hmm. that number is. It's 32.9%. We've never seen a number anything like that um, annual, annual rate of decrease. So throwing that out, and I'm, I'm just relying on the one indicator that I think still is very meaningful, and that's the president's approval rating. The idea is that when an incumbent president is running for re-election, the election is going to be mainly a referendum on the incumbent. And that means that the incumbent's approval rating uh, is a very strong predictor, especially the approval rating when you get close to the election. Now, Trump's approval rating has been remarkably stable, uh, and he's been underwater for his entire just about his entire presidency. And right now, he's at about, you know, minus 10, minus 12. Uh, uh, and and that, that, that predicts a pretty decisive loss in the presidential election with some uncertainty given the fact that we're still a couple of months away from the election. So um, my, my model predicted that he would lose the electoral vote 319 to 219. Um, if he's still at about the same point in October, in late October, he would lose it by even more, um, but because there's still time remaining for him to turn things around, uh, you know, then uh, the, it doesn't look quite as dire as, as it would if we were much closer to the election.
1: I, I, thank you. That's really fascinating, and I appreciate your uh, telling you that we're going to talk about uh, President Trump and the presidential race in a couple minutes. I will say, uh, Alan, your numbers on the Electoral College uh, pretty much mirror what uh, NBC just uh, put out uh, mm-hmm. in, in the last 24 hours. They see the race as being the Electoral College gap being about the same, but everybody understands This is fluid, so we're not making any real predictions right now. It hinges on about eight swing states, right? It
4: hinges on about eight swing states where the race is closer than it is nationally.
1: Okay, let's. I want to go back to the Senate because we have a couple of Democrats, We have several Democrats running in that race, number two, and uh, I want to talk about them for a couple of minutes. Uh, Kevin Riley, there has been people have said Raphael Warnock. The pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, one of the most important and obviously historic churches in the United States, uh, they expected him to explode out of the gate when he finally announced that he was running for Senate. He has not exploded out of the gate, at least in terms of the polling. He's been raising uh, good amounts of money, but but he's still got to move up in the polls. People have said perhaps part of it is because he hadn't been on the air uh, and, and, and now, Kevin, we're watching to see, and in a minute we'll play the new ad. But, Kevin, do you think uh, Warnock getting on the air with bigger buys is going to make a difference for him?
2: Well, I, I mean, it, it is very hard to tell. And, and, and as we were talking earlier, I mean, the two Republicans have just dominated this so much. I think that common sense tells us that only one Republican and one Democrat will emerge. And it, sounds, it feels a lot like Warnock's counting on that. I just wonder if there's any danger in that. I'd be curious to particularly see what our experts here have to say because, what I mean, I bet you a lot of average people just don't even really know that there is a Democrat in that race the way this has gone.
1: Well it- – and I, Warnock does have to introduce himself to the state. And uh, he's doing it with very personal stories about growing up on the southeast Georgia coast. And, and here's his brand new spot, which he recounts a story of what happened to him as a young boy. 1982, a 12-year-old is accused of stealing and dragged out of store, told he looks suspicious because his hands are in his pockets. I'm Raphael Warnock. And that boy was me back then. I didn't understand how much the system works against those without power and money, that the rules were different for some of us too often. That's still true today, especially in Washington. I approve this message because it's time for that to change. Amy Steigerwald, it feels, it struck me that that spot talking about a very personal story is a really effective way to talk about the message of racial justice uh, without hitting people over the head with the broadest terms that we've been hearing about lately, yes?
0: Uh, yes, I think so. I mean, sort of visually, you're watching a black man talk about how it was that he was treated and suggesting that, right, and especially if you know who he is, the you know head of Ebenezer Baptist Church, someone who, you know, followed in the mantle of Martin Luther King, that this was how he was treated as well, and that that is still something that he thinks about when he walks into stores is, uh, I think, incredibly evocative and sort of, again, uh, much more personal, right, sort of liking it to the... The Doug Collins ad where it's talking directly to the person, making it about themselves, sort of showing. And it is it is an oddly sort of positive ad, right, in the sense of saying that, like, we can work past this, right? We can towards and sort of turn to me on that. Um, I think, though, the issue, which we're sort of talking about, is many people, I have a feeling, don't know who Raphael Warnock is, right? He's very well known in metro Atlanta, right? And he's particularly really well known uh, in sort of the black community, perhaps the progressive white community. But outside of those areas, he's not necessarily well known. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing in the polling is that he doesn't have sort of that natural name recognition. And so he needs to get more ads that are out there because he needs incredibly high turnout. The issue is, is that it's possible for Collins and Leffler to be the runoff. Right? There doesn't have to be a Democrat in the runoff, so he needs to sort of get out there. And what he's also got, and I'm, I know you're going to play a clip from this as well, is the other person in the, uh, on the Democratic side that's really sort of has a little bit of traction and also has name recognition, given who his father was, is Matt Lieberman. Right? So that's a name that lots of people recognize. Um, again, they probably don't really know who Matt Lieberman is, but they know the name Lieberman. Right? They remember Joe Lieberman from his time. He ran as vice president. And so there is a need to get out there.
1: All right. So with that in mind, uh, Alan and Eric, I'm going to add Matt Lieberman to this conversation. Uh, His dad is Joe Lieberman, one of the best known national politicians of the last maybe 30 years, vice presidential candidate. Uh, And Matt kind of came out of nowhere. And some of the polls show him not performing too badly. Uh, We're going to listen to his spot. What you'll what, what you're seeing as, as the spot begins is Kelly Leffler and then Doug Collins, and then we hear from Matt Lieberman. Here it is.
4: I'm the president's biggest defender and supporter. Democrats,
1: they're in love with terrorists. What is it with these people? Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler, they act like they took an oath to Donald Trump and not the United States of America. I'm Democrat Matt Lieberman. And as a dad and longtime teacher, when I hear my opponents, it sounds like a bunch of seven or eight-year-olds in a schoolyard squabble. We need adults in the U.S. Senate, so let's reject the Trump worshipers and elect someone whose oath is to you. All right, uh, Alan Abramowitz, there you have it. It looks like, I mean, we do think Warnock and Lieberman may be the two. You've got uh, Ed Tarver in there as well. But what do you make, you listen to these two ads, and what do you think about each of these candidates and how they're approaching the uh, race?
4: That was an online ad, right? Yeah, oh, I'm okay, sorry. So yes,
1: that's a digital ad. Thank that, you. That's, what, Thank that's you.
4: all you need to know. Uh, Matt Lieberman has no money for advertising on television. Uh, Raphael Warnock is the only Democrat in the race who actually has enough money to advertise on television. And over the next few weeks, you're going to be seeing a lot of ads for Raphael Warnock. And by the time we get to – by the time people start voting, which actually is not that long from now – um, I, I think that you'll see that Warnock will emerge at clear, as, as, as a clear front runner on the Democratic side in that race um, and that he will end up in the runoff between, you know, one of the two Republicans. So I, I think that's by far and away the most, the most likely scenario. I mean, Lieberman has a problem also in, in that, yes, his father's name brings some name recognition, but it isn't necessarily positive when it was Democrats. But Democrats remember Joel it, to the extent that they remember him at all. Uh, and it's been a while, OK, since he's been visible. But to the extent they remember him at all, it was for uh, uh, su- supporting John McCain against Barack Obama in 2008. And now, again, he's, he's endorsed Susan Collins in the Senate race in Maine yeah. over the Democrats. So um, yeah. the, the Lieberman name is is a very mixed, <laughs> mixed blessing uh, when, it, when it comes to appealing to Democratic voters. Eric, and he has no visibility in the state. He's never done anything in you know, he's never been involved in politics in the state. You know, he's never done a, a thing. Right.
3: Yeah, I, Eric, I, I agree. In. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with Alan. Uh there's not a compelling uh case for Lieberman. He doesn't have the money. Raphael Warnock uh has raised a lot of money. And I should point out too with the campaign finance rules. He has to spend all the money that he raised for his general election in the general election. And then you raise money for the runoff, which is separate. So he has to spend that money. I think you're going to continue to see him run more uh, biographical ads. I think he's setting himself up for the runoff election. Uh, and I think he's also probably spending that money identifying who his voters are and making sure that they turn out to vote for him so that he wins uh, or becomes the Democrat that that makes it uh, into into the runoff. So I think he's laying a foundation uh, for the runoff in January.
2: I do think, too, to pick up on what Eric's saying there, Bill, uh, If you look at the style of the ads, the way they're put together, Warnock has chosen this approach of storytelling. In other words, he's telling a story about himself that's so unbelievably specific. And we know from working in media, that is often the way you move people. I mean, stories full of statistics and persuasive studies and all that never move people as much as the simple powerful tale of a single person affected by policy or life. So I I think that that could turn out well.
1: Uh, We got to get to a break. Not surprising that a preacher as powerful as Raphael Warnock has always been would use Mm -hmm. personal storytelling. He's done it in his sermons at Ebenezer Baptist uh, for many years. So it's going to be fascinating to watch how that translates to his political campaign. Uh, Let's get our final break. The show out of the way when we come back. I want to talk about David Perdue, but I want to put him in the context of the president and the issues that suddenly have popped up that President Trump's going to have to deal with in the weeks ahead as the election approaches. Uh, You're listening to Political Rewind. Of course, Senate race number one uh, features a match between the incumbent Republican David Perdue and Democrat John Ossoff. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the dynamics of their specific campaign, but I do want to play the David Perdue spot uh, because what's interesting about it, as you listen, listen to what it doesn't say. Here is the latest Perdue spot. When I got to the Senate, I was outraged at how our military was being disrespected. It was way past time to do something. We stood up and achieved the largest pay increase for our women and men in uniform in a decade.
0: We both served overseas, and we have kids. Trust me, military families needed that raise. David Perdue is truly making a difference.
1: So Amy Steigerwald, I assume that that spot was produced before the Atlantic Magazine revelations about the disrespectful ways in which President Trump allegedly has talked about military personnel. Uh, but it's interesting, uh, the timing of putting it on the air is particularly interesting. Uh, he says he was outraged by the way that people were disrespected in the military, he, he, but there's no effort to defend the president. Again, the spot, the spot was probably be produced before the revelations, but it is interesting, the timing of this coming out, Amy.
0: It is interesting, and I think you know. I mean, what the ad doesn't obviously mention is Trump, and it it is a difficult thing for David Perdue right now, right? He is running a statewide race, which means that the down ballot effects from the presidential race affect him uh, much more so than some of the other races that are happening that have uh, sort of smaller districts. And one of the big issues that comes in here is that as um, Alan, as mentioned earlier, is that President Trump's approval ratings are not great. Um, they're remarkably stable in the like low 40s. Um, sort of almost nothing seems to make them move sort of up or down. And that's a real risk for all of the senators, actually, in the nation that are running for re-election. And we're seeing sort of, again, multiple sort of stories coming out uh, – McConnell's uh, leadership pack really talking about the types of votes that they're trying to take to help those senators who are facing re-election, but also ways that they're able to perhaps um, not tie themselves as closely to the president in case that that could be harmful for them down ballot. In fact, we're possibly going to see, and I know um, places like Crystal Ball have mentioned this, the idea of emphasizing ticket-splitting where you vote for one party up at the top. So, for example, if you're not so sure that you want to support Trump, you vote for Biden. But then you vote for a member of the opposite party, such as Purdue, Leffler, Collins in the Senate races, to provide that check, right, on those sort of possible uh, partisan impulses as a way. And so I think that we're going to start to see a lot of the Senate candidates, particularly the Republican Senate candidates, having to really sort of tread that path.
3: Yeah, Bill, uh, I I just want to, you know, add, I think Amy's absolutely right. I mean, one of the challenge for Senate races in a presidential year is that these are national elections and you have to separate yourself. Look, David Perdue uh, has a good feel for Georgia. Georgia is a strong military state. We've got a strong and that adds. Uh, My guess was done a while ago before, you know, this Atlantic magazine article, and I think it just shows you uh, David's appreciation for uh, the military, and that's why he cut that ad. So I think, you know, you're going to see David, you know, talk about things that David has done for Georgia. He's been a very responsive senator for Georgia, and I think that's what you're going to see over the course of the next month. It's going to be very different, I think, I would expect the Purdue ads to be very different than the Leffler Collins ads because they are, as we talked earlier, I mean, they're really running a primary within a general where David is running a general election and needs to have broad appeal. And I think, you know, one of the benefits David, I think, has is he's been in the Senate for six years. He's done a very good job and he's appealed to people beyond just the base of the Republican Party because he's delivered for Georgians. Democrats, independents, and Republicans.
4: Yeah, Ellen? Yeah, I think that it's very interesting to compare the, uh, the, the Purdue ads with, with, with the Leffler ads. Uh, they're, they're very, very different. Uh, so Purdue doesn't ever mention Trump, as far as I know. Um, in fact, the only way Trump comes into that race is uh, the, on the, the Democratic ads attacking, uh, attacking him. Uh, he's being attacked for standing with Trump and for failing to effectively respond to the to the pandemic. Uh, on the other side, uh, Purdue is emphasizing his constituency service and things he's done to help help Georgians. Um, so it's, it's a very very different uh, a kind of race. Um, as far as ticket splitting is concerned, though, I, I think that that is a, um it's very difficult to to expect. Tickets, there's just very little ticket splitting. People don't split the ticket anymore. You know, if you, if you look at what happened in 2018 and 2016, um, you know, very little ticket splitting. Um, in, in 2016, the last time we had a presidential election, every Senate race was won by the candidate from the same party that won the presidential race in that state, every single one, um, which is the first time I think that's ever happened. Um, and, you know, I don't know if that's going to happen again, but it's very difficult for a candidate to separate himself or herself from the president uh, of, of their party. Um, so I think if, if um, you know, if Biden wins Georgia, which I think is possible, uh, I certainly wouldn't predict it at this point, but I, I think it's possible uh, that it's going to be in big trouble. Uh, he, needs, he needs Trump to at least win a narrow uh, victory uh, in Georgia, most most likely scenario, I think is is that Trump does win Georgia, but by a very close margin, uh, and he put any polls uh, producer with him. But you know it, it could certainly go the other way.
1: Uh, Kevin, I think one of the things about the revelations in the Atlantic article, which are really kind of devastating, and we don't have to repeat them because it's been big news, and mo- people who listen to this show certainly have heard what Trump has said in disparaging. Uh, military personnel. It's a big military state. we got a lot of military families who live here. Military Times, in a highly respected uh, publication, News uh, Journal for the Military, their polling shows that Trump has lost ground considerably, that Biden may be, in fact, able to uh, win the military vote. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see how all that plays out here in Georgia.
2: Yeah, I think we can probably expect uh, Biden to, to, to pretty soon be talking about his son's military service. Maybe we'll see an ad from him, something like that, because clearly he has an opening here because of what's come out about Trump, and I'm sure he'll try to exploit it.
1: All right, we've got not enough time to talk about these explosive revelations in the Bob Woodward book. We will talk about it tomorrow. Uh, Michael Thurman, Sam Olden's be on the show, and we'll uh, dig into it deeper. I wish I had that time with this panel because they'd be really interesting on it. But uh, real quick, Alan, um, the Woodward book and what it tells us about Trump's not being candid, claiming that he wanted to protect the American people from panic. Is that What impact could that have on his base voters, his sw- the swing voters? Any impact yeah. at all?
4: Oh, well, the, most, the da- most damaging thing about it, of course, is that Trump's speaking in his own voice. It's his own voice. you know. So we really can't deny that he said these things. There it is, that he allowed himself to be recorded. Uh, on the other hand, does, does it actually move any uh, voters at this stage? Um, I doubt it. I seriously doubt it. I, I think oh, the overwhelming majority of voters are locked in right now. They've made their decision. Amy, um, the- there are very, as very we, few swing
1: undecided voters, very few. Amy, as, I'm sorry, as we run out of time, yeah. it does seem to me that it could have an impact on what happens in terms of public uh, confidence in the way they're being talked to about COVID-19, about whether they should get the vaccine that will eventually come. That seems to me where the real damage might be done, not the presidential race. you got about 10 um, seconds to respond. A, so the way
0: it affects the presidential race is not about who people necessarily support, but whether or not they turn out to vote. So it does have the possibility of ah. depressing turnout and emphasis in the base.
1: I, Amy Steigerwald, Ellen Abramowitz, Eric Tannenblad, Kevin Riley, I really wish I had another hour to dig in with you because this has been a terrific conversation. Thank you all for joining us. I'm Bill Nygut, back again tomorrow. In the meantime, please take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, get a flu shot. See y'all tomorrow.